What would a digital badging system look like for new faculty? That would be amazing. Just to navigate the whole system, if someone had plotted out a scaffolded pathway for my onboarding, that would have been amazing. So you're saying we should give a digital badge for faculty who find their way to our offices? <laughs> yes, when they walk in, let's badge them. Badge them. Yes. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. As we come into the home stretch of our summer bonus episodes, we are very excited to have a special guest, a real live faculty member, joining us today for a candid conversation on all things ed tech. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kajwaitiwa, Aaron Kraft, Stephen Crawford, and we are thrilled to have Don Augusta joining us today. Don is a clinical associate professor in the Integrative Health Program here at Con High. So Don, thank you for joining the IBD crew today. Before we jump into our conversation, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and how you came to teaching at ASU? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here today. It's fun to be part of this team. I've been here at ASU. This is my second semester, and I... I remember venturing over to this instructional design department and wanting to kind of hang out with you guys. This is actually where some of the fun and the magic happens at ASU. So thank you for having me here today. Absolutely. My professional career began seven years ago um, in teaching at Phoenix College. I taught nursing there for the past seven years um, and then transitioned over here to ASU uh, last summer. My professional career in nursing began 15 years ago. I, believe it or not, was actually a high school dropout. I was the girl that was on Mill Avenue. Um, You'd pass by and somebody would say, hey guys, you want to check out some necklaces? (laughs) Well, that was me until I hit my pivot point when I was 19 years old and decided that the selling necklaces wasn't going to quite cut it and started at Gateway Community College and never turn back. Just that higher, the road to higher ed kept pulling me. Awesome. For our listeners who may not know, Mill Avenue is sort of a main thoroughfare alongside the ASU Tempe campus. Oh yeah, very vibrant, lots of students and um, just a mix of, of the whole community. Also known as the party street? That too. <laughs> <laughs> All those college students, go figure. All right, let's dive in. To get started, Dawn, could you tell us a little bit about your experience with or perspective on the viability of podcasts as a method of faculty development? Sure. Um, You know, just like students, I think faculty, all of us, are just really busy people. So oftentimes I've made voiceover lectures. And as a professor, I got really excited when my students would say, you know, how meaningful it was to be able to be in my car or cooking dinner and be able to listen to your lecture while multitasking, while doing other things. And so I think the same is true for faculty. If faculty are able to, you know, learn a little bit while they're driving to their next um, appointment in terms of, and it just be so accessible like a podcast, rather than having to sign up for a conference and actually attend and make that, you know, fit into their schedule, I think the viability of podcasts can really be far-reaching for faculty development. That's great. I think that's that reflects some of the experiences we've had in the last couple of years producing instruction by design in terms of that flexibility being really key, that portability being very important. What happened back 
50 years ago, it was perfectly acceptable to be expected to be in a room at a certain time and to watch a presentation or lecture. What changed to now where we need this flexibility, where we need this on-demand access to these kinds of materials? What's different now? We like instant gratification. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you really nailed it on demand. So when you're ready for something like that, that's the time to strike when the iron's hot. Rather than sometimes you sign up for a conference and at the time you signed up, it felt like this was great. And then six weeks later, when the conference is there, there, all these things and demands happen and, and you feel differently. You're a little bit torn. You're not as ready for that moment of education. You know, I think also the complexity of the world we live in, um, 50, even 10 years ago, you know, I think it was easier to plan and do things, as you were saying, like with the conferences. But at the same time, you had fewer demands that say, oh, no, you have to throw everything out and do this now, which meant you're, if, you know, you had, didn't have that happen as much. And I think today, as you said, we plan things in advance and then things happen and we have to either cancel or rearrange things. And so the complexity is just so much more difficult, but our desire to gain that knowledge and gain that information is still there. So how do we maintain that? And technology has helped bridge that gap. Well, yeah, we all have devices in our pockets. It's really easy to get that on-demand learning anytime, anywhere. We're conditioned to that at this point. I want to watch a YouTube video. I pull it up on my phone. I don't have to wait till I get home right. get on my computer. Or I don't have to wait until my mother gets off the phone so I can access the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I remember those Throwbacks. days. Exactly. And then a conference, you know, it's like, well, what I could get in eight hours, could you just condense it into the salient points that I need to know into something that I can pick up while I'm driving or in this moment while I'm waiting between these two appointments. I think there's something to be said about that immersion into that environment where you can think about that topic for that long, for multiple hours. It's just not realistic anymore, mm-hmm. but it's, I do miss that. I do like, I, I appreciate it when, we can, when that is possible. Another thing that I've been reflecting on is the potential for us to tell stories and that there's this sort of crossover a little bit with some engagement and entertainment while you're learning. Makes it maybe a little bit more palatable. Yeah, recently um, with the podcast being on my phone, my car radio has been automatically connecting to our podcast every time I get in the car. (laughs) And normally I'm like, oh my God, just turn it off. I don't want to hear myself. I don't want (laughs) to. But lately when it's been doing that, I found myself just driving and listening to us the entire way and sometimes chuckling at, you know, different things that happen in our podcast. But it's been interesting for it to just, you know, connect to that. And then for me, because podcasts are still, you know, difficult for me. But with it coming on, I mean, I found myself um, engaged in it. And so it's been an interesting experience lately with that happening. My radio just deciding that's what it's going to go to automatically. <laughs> and I think that storytelling is an interesting piece. And, and the fact that our other devices now connect to our other devices yes. automatically with the ability of so many of us now to be able to get our story out, to tell our lived experiences. I mean, before you only had the experts, you'd have to go travel to a conference, go listen to the expert and then go, boy, I wish my life was like theirs. Now there's people like us and and people who are not like us sharing our stories. And we're finding those who are like us and going, OK, they have a similar lived experience. What I'm doing is not strange. I'm not alone in the world. And then it happens automatically. Yeah. 
it doesn't have to be somebody within your immediate web of contacts. It can be somebody across the nation who you happen to find on iTunes or you happen to do a Google search and it's like, oh, they have a, they have a podcast and they have the same experience I do and it's something that I need to know more about. You can access it right there. I think that's sort of the beauty of this system that's sort of grown uh, organically over the years. Well, and that's what has made it fun too. When you do get out to like, you know, conferences or meetings where you're, where you're seeing other people in the field and it might be someone who you have been listening to on a podcast or you have been following on social media and, th and then you get to actually see them and, you know, meet them in person. I think that's, you know, always a fun connection that you get to make. Just to piggyback off that, the point of connection and story. Um, when I was a new professor, I did a fellowship with the it was a scholarship of teaching and learning and how to use storytelling in teaching nursing students to retain knowledge. And it was so interesting that you know, if we had all of this information for students to digest and to bring in, but if you put it in the form of a story, every pin in the room could go down and they're engaged. And you remember a story because then you connect it again to your lived experience and you find that place of overlap. And I think the same is true in instructional design as we any learner, the moment you turn that learning into a story and it's relatable, you don't have to take notes anymore because you're, you're in, you're drawn into that story. Why is the narrative so powerful? Any idea? I mean, it's true. If something's embedded within a narrative, you tend to remember it. A moral mm -hmm. of a story is more powerful when you when it's told to you as a story. I think because it touches on things like emotion. Um, it evokes emotion in you. So that automatically makes it a connection. Um, when you remove emotion from things, I think it makes it harder for you to make that connection and bring it into your... So you think the traditional didactic lecture, it might be stripping away that warmth, that emotion that people need for it to really embed as a deep learning experience? Yes, Well, exactly. Chip and Dan Heath, in a book they wrote called Made to Stick, uh, talk about using stories as a way to introduce a lecture. So you would tell a story and get to the problem of the story, and then that's where you stop the story. You lecture on the content that ends up being the solution to the story, and then you wrap up the lecture by telling the end of the story on how that content you just lectured about led to a solution to that problem you introduced in the very beginning with that first part of the story. I'll have to read that. You'll have to read that one day. Yeah, that sounds great. And I, and I think that we, what story does is it draws in the imagination. It allows the person to have the autonomy and to have time to wonder where I fit in the story and what's the meaning to me. Um, and then I think humans love to be uh, problem solvers. A story is fit like that. It's got that beginning and then there's always some sort of conflict that occurs. And then you're trying to, as you watch a movie too, you're trying to already figure out the ending or how's this going to, to go. Um, whereas instruction just spoon fed to you where you don't get to have that imagination, wonder and problem solving. Yeah, that empathy is really important for that, like attention and engagement too, because if you're just sort of receiving things and also paying attention to your phone and all these other distractors in the room, you're, you're not going to retain as much. Your attention is distracted. But if you're investing every bit of your moment in that story, that's going to help you remember it as well. You know, and as you're applying the knowledge you have, as you listen to the story, you know, you start seeking other ways other solutions. And, and I think that's an important thing as well, is that a lot of times our younger students, especially their mental abilities, have them thinking there's only a right answer and a wrong answer. And then as they learn and develop further, they learn that there are more than one 
correct answer. And then eventually they learn sometimes there is no right answer. There's just a bunch of answers. Some are better than others for different reasons. And and that creates the ability to see through a story and go, okay, that was one pathway through it. But, you know, I could have done it this way if I was that character. And it starts letting them explore those possibilities, I think, more. Are these adult lessons or can children learn this way too? Everybody. Humans. I used to teach a digital storytelling class for um, our workshop for K-12. And the teachers that I used to have in these workshops would work with students from kinder through eighth grade. And so these types of stories definitely work with everyone, children, adults. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something about that personal investment, uh, words like ownership, autonomy came up. There's, uh, or I said ownership, but um, Don, you mentioned uh, autonomy, right? But there's something about investing your time or investing your own imagination where it, all of a sudden you have this momentum in your head. Or someone's telling you the story, but you're seeing the images and all of a sudden maybe you're a character within the story. And there's something uh, powerful about that. Apparently it's, it's been proven. And, you know, we do know how fallible memory is. I mean, you know, for example, you ask the number of people who remember seeing the first plane crash in the World Trade Center and a lot of people raise their hands. The answer is they're all lying and they don't know it because almost nobody saw that first plane hit the tower. There's no there's no video footage of it. But second plane, whole different story. And, you know, and that's one of the great studies on memory and how how infallible it is and how we trust it inappropriately. But stories allow for multiple connections to be made to memory. And, and, and as long as one of those connections survive, ideally you can recall it. And so that's kind of the idea, I think, on why stories work so well, is you identify with the characters, the situation, the, the problem. It's not just the content now. It's, there's all these extra connections and formations there. So what you're really talking about is embedding learning within context, a real life context. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, science fiction. I, I'm a huge science fiction fan. I like it where it's more towards the hard side of science fiction, where they're talking about real science as opposed to dystopian futures. Um, but I, you know, it's a great way to imagine what if and think about how could things go and then imagine a path forward and what do I need to learn to get there? I'm, I'm a big Star Trek fan. Obviously, it's not real, but th- there is a suspension of disbelief when the scenario is portrayed in a way that uh, makes sense to me. Like, oh, yeah, 200 years from now, that, that could be possible. Sure, right? Yeah, well, the flip phone was a Star Trek device from the 60s. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, Don, shortly after you started at ASU, you mentioned to our ID team that you had some experience with the Digital Badge Initiative. Tell us about that and anything else you'd like the universe to know about digital badges from your perspective. Digital badges are so fun. Um, well, growing up, I was a Girl Scout, and so I had that just that connection between earning these small incremental badges and, you know, displaying them, you know, as my proud work of what I've attained. And I wanted to relate that same thing for nursing students that, you know, as humans, if it, it, we're going along this long, daunting path and nursing school most certainly is exhausting. And if Along the way, you see, you know, you've got this goal at the very end of it, but it's exhausting to get there. And I thought, we, it's perfectly set up with all these skills that they attain. So I set up this digital badging experience that scaffolded their skills into micro-credentials. So along the way, they were able to earn, for instance, their IV start badge, their um, 
IV infusion therapist badge, a badge to do discontinuation of IV, et cetera. And students responded just so positively. And I really liken it to setting that goal. If somebody were to attempt to go up Mount Everest, if you looked at the top, so many people would not even attempt it. But if you, along the way, you saw a tree and it was just far enough and you said, you know what, I can get to that tree. And then you got to the tree and then you chose another milestone. I can get to that. And then you look and before you know it, you're already at the top. So this digital badging initiative was in that sense. And, in, and also so that students could um, display their badges to others like I did when I was a girl with my Girl Scout badges. Now, how, how do you display a digital badge? Um, actually, there's a virtual backpack, um, and students could take their badges and put it in a backpack and then actually display them on LinkedIn, um, Facebook, any di- different platforms, social media. Did you ever run into the issue of those badges being able to transfer over to other places or... The portability? Po- yes. Well, because it was able to be displayed on you know, such a social platform like LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And for nurses, that was really, you know, applicable because, you know, after you graduate, you want to go out and get a job and be, you know, very marketable and competitive. And so if you were able to display a badge, but it needed to also have criteria, what this meant when you earn this badge. Mm -hmm. So I actually had taken an old kind of an antiquated system of nurses skills sheet, and we've got this across the nation. They have this piece of paper, and it's like an Excel spreadsheet, and they would start an IV, and their nursing instructor would put their initials and a date in it, and that's all that was there. And so somehow, at the end of when they graduated, I was asking the question, so what is this piece of paper supposed to mean to anybody? They carried it around for two years. It's got coffee stains on it. It's (laughs) wrinkled. They lost it. And are they going to take that to an interview? And what does the initial even mean? Mm -hmm. So the digital badging was a way of really spelling out exactly what the student did to earn this badge. And then as they scaffolded underneath um, a bigger credential, students really loved this. And I feel the same way. I, I'll give an example. Um, I recently got Invisalign, you know, braces. The braces. Uh-huh. Right, the braces. I was yeah. considering those. Do you like them? <laughs> They're great. Okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know. I took... <laughs> Took them out for this podcast, which is the wonderful thing. So every week you put in a new tray. And I, my whole um, treatment plan has 33 trays. And so this week I'm on tray number six. And it feels like, okay, I'm almost getting there. Oh, and I'll have to be at seven. And soon I imagine myself at 22. And there's something to that. But if I were to just start a day one and just know that I've got to go to work to 33, but there wasn't this increment, incremental gain, It feels daunting. Yeah, exactly. I love your examples. The both of those, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. We've touched on digital badges just briefly in the podcast before. um, And one of the ways that we've talked about it is a solution that's still looking for a problem to solve. And so this, this brings another perspective of how it can be both a motivator for a learner that they're getting recognition that's meaningful to them but that there is a value to it beyond their own goal setting and attainment, that there really is some applicability to their professional life. So that's fantastic. You know, as you're sitting there talking, you know, I've been thinking about some of the big hairy problems that we deal with 
And you said in your introduction that this is, you know, you just finished your second semester as a faculty member here. What would a digital badging system look like for new faculty to scaffold a new faculty member from novice to expert? That would be amazing. I think what it does is it plots out a pathway. Actually, I, I wear this, this necklace and, and it's a little pathway on it. It's the Chinese proverb, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And when I started here at ASU, I wasn't sure where do I step. And I would just stumble here into the instructional design area. And I knew that this was a place where I should be, but I wasn't sure exactly what kind of skills I could gain here or knowledge or just to navigate the whole system. If someone had plotted out, you know, sort of a scaffolded pla- um, pathway for my onboarding, that would have been amazing. So you're saying we should give a digital badge for faculty who find their way to our offices? <laughs> yes, <laughs> when they walk in, let's badge them. Badge, badge, you made it past the construction. Great yes. job. <laughs> if for our listeners, there's a construction area outside of our office right now that's almost done, hopefully next couple of weeks. But, you know, looking back on the last year, what badges do you think you have earned if they had existed? What, what are some of the nuggets? Go, oh, that, was, that, would have been a, that would have been a badge. That would have been a badge. Sure. Um, one badge, I think, would be the e-portfolio, working with Celia about, you know, how do I set this up for my students? You know, how is it going to be, you know, again, not daunting for them, just navigating uh, setting up an e-portfolio for students and how is it portable from class to class? And, you know, so I would say e-portfolio is one. Blackboard, you know, I came from a system that used Canvas. So I was very expert at using Canvas and then coming here in Blackboard. So that was a brand new system for me to navigate. I think that would have been a great badge. All the buildings down here in downtown ASU. It's a good one. Who's what yeah. and where. Yeah, locations, yeah. Right. My favorite thing about digital badges is when they're designed well. I love a good visual design, and I think that's what excites me. And I, I like that about the, the, the Boy Girl Scouts. They, they, the badges were actually really interesting to look at, the design. Somebody put some thought into that. How do you go about designing? Well, it's funny that you asked that question because when you tied in the Star Trek, I thought, well, if you gave somebody a badge that came over here, it made it to instructional design, and it was one that we could actually press and say, hey, help me with my course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want it. We I would love that. that. I want it. <laughs> like a help desk on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, we could make those buttons at uh, Build-A-Bear, where we record our own <laughs> message. <laughs> I was literally just there two days ago. I think we need those uh, sensors on each side of the wall. So when someone comes in, it dings and then they earn their badge. Oh, so whole new frontier. <laughs> I, yes. I'm just thinking, I can just imagine someone crosses that sensor and up pops a hologram of Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> <laughs> but the design element, it, it does need to be neat looking because otherwise it doesn't seem as desirable to earn that badge it's because you're showing it off. I mean, you're talking about the Excel sheet compared to the badges. I mean, the Excel sheet, is, you know, you have these very narrow lines and very small text. And it, it, what does it mean? But this is like a visual approach to the same thing. Exactly. Right? So one way, like for example, the um, IV nursing badge had these four or five different steps that they could attain. And it was a IV needle, but it with the number one an IV needle with the number two. And then it led up to more of a bigger design once you earn all four of them. And, and I could see if there's like, like a five by five grid design. And, and I happen to glance and see that this student has the entire grid filled in. 
my first assumption is they know everything I need them to know. And I can go have them handle pretty much any problem. Whereas if I see a couple of gaps, I can look at that those gaps of that student and go, okay, is that something we can address now? Or is that something that I need to be mindful of because I can't assign them to a certain area um, because they haven't gotten to that content yet and mastered that and mastered that skill yet? Well, that's great from an assessment standpoint. From yeah. an instructor, you can easily see where their skill level lies. So you touched on... Um getting to Harry problems and you touched right now on the incentive. So what were some of the incentives that were given to the students once they passed these skills? Was it just that they got, they were able to move on to a new concept or that got them through the course. So now they can move on to the next course. Bragging rights. Bragging rights. Yeah. I actually, I measured that a little bit. I asked, you know, how motivated were you on a Likert scale? Um, We compared two different schools of nursing you know, how the, the old method of using the antiquated Excel spreadsheet and those that had the, the badging, and they were much more motivated to obtain the badge. And because people at home, their family members were able, or on social media, when they shared the badge, it meant something. It's like running a really long race and you're exhausted and you've got people on the sidelines who are just reading magazines or looking at a at their cell phone, they're just completely oblivious to your hard work versus people on the sidelines continuously saying, wow, great job. You're almost there. You did it. That's what badges did for these nursing students. What a great motivating factor. Yes. We all love a cheerleader. We all could just wake up to having our own cheerleader. (laughs) Cup of coffee. (laughs) It's like an internal cheerleader. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dawn. Here's your chance to challenge the instructional designers. This is your conversational wild card. Where do you want to go next? Ooh. Well, you know, coming from the community college, I served there for seven years in Maricopa Community College. Great place to work. And coming here to ASU felt like a nut, like when I started here at ASU, I felt like I, do I work at Google? Just fantastic. You know, all the opportunities and the sophisticated technology and such a big team. But my heart still lies in that story from the beginning. I'm the high school dropout. How do we pave a road for, for people who don't have access to, you know, go to ASU or university? And how do we make this dotted line from the community college to university more of a solid line? And I challenge, I think, I think a wonderful collaboration between community colleges and universities would be to scaffold a badging system that actually allowed students to kind of navigate their path to higher ground. And so I would challenge instructional designers from university level to work with community college level to make that more of a solid line. To make learning more accessible. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. I think one of the fun things that we have done in the past is uh, participate in the Maricopa community. Um, teaching and learning. Yeah. Oh, teaching and learning with technology. But that's been a lot of fun to see what the community colleges are doing. It's a showcase of technology. So we have participated there, bringing in presentations of experience that we've had here. But getting around to see what some of those other, whether it's instructional designers or faculties within the community community colleges have been able to showcase. That's been a lot of fun to see where, you know, some of the students are coming from that. And then what are they getting here? So it's an interesting comment because... You know, there are some really neat things going on 
at different levels of the university, and instructional design is not one of them. For an example, they were talking in ASU News uh, the last uh, last week, it was, about the reverse degrees, where students who start in a Maricopa Community College come to a- and don't finish an associate's degree, but come to ASU and could they transfer it over and then earn enough credits in the correct courses that they actually have now completed a Maricopa associate's degree are now being awarded those. So as they have started a Maricopa, come to ASU, and maybe their path to a bachelor's degree is a little bit longer than anticipated, at least along the way, they get a credential that will hopefully give them a pay increase. What we're seeing is that it is you know, leading to students sometimes having the financial ability to continue to get to their bachelor's degree. So that's happening. Um, you look at some of the partnerships this college and others have where like continuous enrollment programs with uh, nursing. We have our RN to BSN program working with commu- certain community college sites where instead of going to a community college, earning your associates in nursing and passing the NCLEX there in two years, instead you're taking three years to earn it, to earn that associate's degree because of the fact ASU courses are now getting interspersed in the first year. So the fourth year is pure online ASU, but after four years, you have a bachelor's of nursing. And that, I think, speaks to the portability and accessibility of learning and how important instructional design plays in, in that role of making it accessible. Yeah. And then how do we work with the 10 independently accredited, I'm sorry, individually accredited community colleges of Maricopa within that district? Because it's, it's a complicated scenario, but yet there's lots of opportunities if, if played correctly. Sounds like there's a lot of room for innovation there, different pathways. I think the other thing I would just like to put out there, because it's a goal of mine, is to be more visible to my students. I think with online learning, you know, that's, the, that's where we're definitely headed. It's on demand and portable and accessible. Um, but I, I think that human presence still needs to be there and for professors to feel more comfortable um, popping, putting a little video of themselves up on a weekly basis, just the announcement, or, or having discussion boards that are actually people talking and articulating their thoughts instead of typing out their thoughts. Um, so if we can get professors more comfortable with being in front of the video camera. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about the correlation between instructor presence and the use of multimedia. For example, videos, right? Or even just hearing the voice of the instructor maybe updated on a weekly basis, like you said, would help greatly because there can be a, a pretty large psychological gap that occurs, particularly in distance courses like online courses. And uh, having that human presence, even though it's still virtual, but through video or through at least voice, at least voice yeah. uh, does help to reduce anxiety uh, on the student end, which is a huge deal. That's true. That sounds like a badge. I, that's yeah, maybe one that I, I think I'm getting my audio, or audio badge today. There you go. <laughs> In fact, we have an episode about instructor presence from season one. So check that out. Season one, episode five. Instructor presence in the online and face-to-face classroom. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of blended learning. So you know, knowing that some of our students need to have that one-on-one time. Not should say one-on-one time, but that that group time with the instructor weekly to stay motivated and and move forward. And you know, you think about again community college students where a lot of them are working, but we're seeing the same thing in in, in four-year universities as well, where they're working now. It, it's not as simple as it used to be. It's far more complex, and and as such, you know, the availability to take time off 
you know, twice a week for an hour and a half or three times a week for an hour on a regular basis when your job sh- hours shift from day to day gets harder and harder. But if you could protect just an hour and a half once a week because the other half is fully online, that pr- provides more opportunities. Absolutely. I think the one big lesson when I left uh, Phoenix College, and I was kind of mourning and thinking like, you know, everybody thinks I'm so great here, but really it's because I had such great support from the instructional design team there. And I was a little bit scared, like, am I going to have that great support here? And I'm so glad to have met you all as such a wonderful team. And we've just begun. Thank you. All right. Well, we've definitely ventured out into a variety of topics, and it has been really interesting to explore that faculty perspective. I'd like to remind our audience that we've posted some related resources in the show notes for this episode, and we would love to hear about your perspectives on these topics, faculty or otherwise. Reach out to us on Twitter or by email. Thank you for joining us on this extra warm summer day with Celia, Aaron, Stephen, and of course, our very special guest, Don Augusta. Be well. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I like being here in the captain's chair. Oh, well, you, you look very official. <laughs> oh, no. Engaged. What did we give? We <laughs> this is a new era. We're going to make it so. Make it so. Make it so. Well, the Picard. 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 Well, Picard did both. Oh, yeah. That's right. Warp Factor 5. Engage. Engage. Oh, yes. Yeah, Engage. <laughs> All right. Oh, we guys. ready to roll? Engage. Make it so. All right. Here we go.